Hello, everybody. This is Akash Pandey, and you're listening to South Asians Love Rap. Stories from people who look like me, set to the music that moves them. Today, my guest is Somia Krishnamurthy, who is a freelance journalist, a pop culture expert, someone whose voice you've probably heard on uh, MTV, CNN, maybe NPR. As recently as uh, last month in August 2020, she came on All Things Considered to comment on uh, Hasan Minaj's show getting canceled, Patriot Act. Uh, she's someone who's written a ton about hip-hop, especially in the late 2000s and 2010s when a lot of the big names today were coming up and when I was definitely tuned into the mixtape scene. I'm excited for you to hear this one. We touch on a whole lot of topics. Uh, she gets into some albums that are near and dear to her. We talk about identity and pop culture from the Kardashians to Indian matchmaking. So thrilled that she decided to come on and uh, get right to the conversation. Um, so I wanted to start with Kalamazoo. I, I, I understand you grew up in Kalamazoo where I visited last year uh, and like had a pretty good time, um, small town vibe. But uh, what, what was it like growing up in Kalamazoo? Yeah, I mean, I think growing up in a small town is such a unique experience. When people think of America, it's usually New York, L.A., maybe Florida, um, and then the rest of the country. And, you know, growing up in a small town in the Midwest, I think it has a lot of like pros and cons. I mean, growing up, you really have like a childhood. And I think, you know, you can ride your bike outside and it's safe. I mean, it was a time when people still like left their doors unlocked. Um, you can go over to friend's house. Like people were really just kind of welcoming and open, um, which was really cool. I think it was a, it was a simpler time maybe. Sure. Um, but insofar as kind of like music and culture, what's kind of crazy was, you know, being sort of from the middle of nowhere, you don't really have sort of a regional identity the way, especially in rap, people in New York had, people in LA had. Um, to some extent, growing up, people in the South that started growing over time, um, you know, obviously Michigan is home to some amazing hip hop, Eminem and Jay Dilla, Slum Village, like there's so much great stuff. Um, but I think the cool part is you kind of become a sponge for everything. So really, my ear could be tuned to things well beyond my boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was also just this idea of discovery. You know, before the era of streaming and social media, you had to do some searching, either listening to college radio or, you know, going on message boards, reading magazines like Blaze and The Source and Vibe to get your hip hop fix. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of grew up, you know, with a lot of that where I had to do some legwork to kind of get my my Biggie and my Pac and my Jay and my Nas and things like that, because they weren't being played on the local radio stations. And it was rare, if any, that a big artist would even um, come to town. Right. Um, well, tell me a little bit about uh, growing up and, and like music in your household. Uh, was music like part of, of your childhood? And is it something that your parents were into when you were growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say we have a very like, musical household. 
Um, you know, my mom is like a trained singer. My brother plays the Murthingham, which is a South Indian percussion instrument. Um, and he actually, he got a degree from Eastman and he now does it professionally. So nice. he's, you know, at that level. always some sort of a music kind of playing in my house um you know for me although you know I am familiar with like Carnatic music like South Indian classical music very early on I knew that wasn't really my speed um but you know at a young age I was like in choir and you know coming up especially in middle school our choir was really competitive we would place like on state level um in the summer I went to like fine arts camp so for me, you know, even though I knew that music wasn't going to be kind of a professional pursuit and sort of that pure form, my ear was always tuned to music and different styles of music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what about uh, like your identity? Uh, how, how much was that part of your experience growing up? Like, how, how did you feel being South Asian or Indian American in Kalamazoo growing up? Uh, is it something that you were proud of or something that you kind of struggled with? You know, it's funny, I think very early on, because I had lived in California before Michigan. And when I moved to Michigan, even as a kid, it was very clear that I wasn't, I was kind of an odd person out. Um, you know, at that time, the area that I grew up in wasn't super diverse. It was very much, I would say, 50-50 white and black. There weren't a lot of South Asians, definitely weren't a lot of Indians. So I very much kind of felt like an outsider from from jump. And it's funny because now looking at culture today, there's so much more representation, whether it's someone like Hasan Minaj or Padma Lakshmi, Mindy Kaling, and the success that they're having in entertainment is so dope because I didn't grow up seeing that. Yeah. Really, there the idea of... Um, an Indian person in general in America, really, you know, the, the definition was pretty narrow, either a doctor, a cab driver, you own a convenience store. Um, it, it was very limited. So, you know, growing up, I think cultural identity, as with a lot of first generation people, it's like this constant figuring out where, where do you fit in? Um, you know, you don't 100% feel you fit in America, but then visiting India, you don't 100% feel like you fit in there. So, you know, where do I fit in? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, a constant journey of just figuring out oneself and what part of each culture you want to take on. Um, and I think that's something that every person has to go through that journey themselves. I mean, you know, I'm many years removed from being a kid, but I think it's still an ongoing conversation. And at every different life stage or every different situation, um, it's constantly changing and evolving. Yeah, no. And I, I'm curious, you know, how hip hop fits within that, right? Uh, that sense of belonging, trying to figure out your footing in America. Was hip hop part of your journey of kind of figuring out who you were and what you valued? I think in a weird way, yes. I mean, it's funny because when you think about hip hop historically, it's really an art form of young black and brown men speaking 
to other young black and brown men. Mm -hmm. So on the surface level, it's not super inclusive um, <laughs> to women or, you know, to, to people who may not fit the, this kind of very narrow demographic. But I think one thing for hip hop, which was always cool for me growing up is seeing, um, you know, young people of color basically creating their own um, life story. Mm -hmm. And for me, one person that was really instrumental was Sean Puffy Combs growing up. Feel the bass. Come on. Following just sort of his business trajectory always intrigued me. Like this mm. is a guy who at, you know, 23 had his own label. Um, he's the CEO. He's the president. He's basically getting paid to do something that looks really fun. And yeah. that to me really attracted me. But I think kind of on a more, you know, psychological level, like hip hop, like so many other art forms like punk and rock, it speaks for young people. And there's this feeling of like angst and not belonging and alienation. And I think for a lot of first generation people, you can really um, empathize with that. And I think growing up for whatever reason, like that music just super resonated with me. Um, and then again, I think just from like a cultural perspective outside of the music, you know, just having a respect and love for black culture and right. art. And, um, you know, that was just something that was always inherent. It, it was something that just resonated. Um, it was like a visceral connection. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you, you've, you've, uh, chosen a couple albums that are bad boy records. And I'm curious if we can get into those starting with, uh, ready to die as like an album that had an influence on you early on. Uh, is that connected to sort of the love for, for Puffy? Like how did that come across your table and, and what resonated so much about that album? Well, I was someone when Ready to Die first dropped, I was a little too young to actually get the album. Mm -hmm. So I bought Life After Death first and okay. then I had to go back in the vault. Um, similar to how I bought It Was Written and then I went back into Illmatic. So, you know, it's just kind of an, an age thing of when you can actually... Uh, put your allowance together and go to record town or target and yeah. buy those CDs when they would drop on Tuesday. Um, you know, for me, ready to die is just like the perfect rap album, like from top to finish, it's this coming of age story. And sonically, I think what big and puff did is they made this like cinematic experience. Like every track feels like a scene from a movie and big just shows this outside of just his lyrical skill and dexterity and storytelling this like vulnerability and it just you know something about it has resonated with me at the time you know from the minute I listened to it and years later decades later I can still listen to that album and it holds up right like to me that's a classic album and if an artist wants to know like what would be a debut album I should strive to be like I always say like ready to die to me is like the perfect record um, you know, insofar as Bad Boy, I think the first Bad Boy album I purchased was uh, No Way Out. Mm. It was Puffy's um, debut album. I want to say it was like $17.99 at Record Town, which was like <laughs> a lot of money back then. Yeah. But, you know, I think it was, for whatever reason, it was just like the start of like the Bad Boy takeover. Um, and, you know, some hip hop purists kind of would roll their eyes like it was the shiny suit era. But one thing about Puff is he would take those you know, soul samples from the 70s and the 80s and create these melodic hit records that really resonated, especially, I think, in the suburbs, right? Because mm -hmm. no matter what, you know, we love a good melody. And I just kind of remember, you know, so many things kind of coming together, like that album dropped, 
TRL came out maybe shortly thereafter and just seeing like Puffy and Mace and the whole bad boy family basically bombarding um, your television. Like I'll never forget. So Puffy and the family, they toured in Grand Rapids, Van Andel Arena. I called every day to the record um, station to try to get tickets. Never happened. It was so sad. I think I was like bawling my eyes out. Fast forward decades later, when Puff and the family did the reunion show at Barclays, again, sold out. It was so hard to get tickets, but I like begged his publicist to have a good relationship with. I'm like, look, I don't care about every other favor you owe me. I need a ticket to this. So I literally went to the show by myself and it was awesome. It was like all of the records that I wanted to see performed um, so many years later. And, you know, it's kind of a cool full circle moment. Yeah, I, I recently read uh, Dan Charnas's book about the business of hip hop. And I came away really struck by the puffy parts. And like, I've always respected Puff, but just seeing his story at Uptown and what happened with Sean Harrell or Andre Harrell, and then sort of his sense of frustration, like, I don't know if I can build this thing and then what he's done and all the different artists he's launched, uh, be it you know, a, a, a Titan like Big or uh, Mary J. Blige and like so many people since. And, you know, his ear for music is definitely something you called out. Like the first time I heard that Diana Ross uh, song that is on Mo Money, Mo Problems. And I was like, man, that's such a good reimagining of it and putting it on a, a on a rap track so i definitely have a lot of respect for him uh, as a producer uh what, what are some of the standout tracks starting with ready to die like what are some of the tracks that you go back to or have really made an impact on you um i mean i love the t- the opening track i think it's things done changed which i think is just really great storytelling Back in the days, our parents used to take care of us. Look at them now. They ain't fucking scared of us. Calling the city for help because they can't maintain. Damn shit done changed. It just encapsulates that feeling of angst and despair of just a young black kid growing up in, in Brooklyn at that time. So I think that record is awesome. If I wasn't in the rap game, I'd probably have a key knee deep in the crack game because the streets is a short stop. Either you're slinging crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. Shit, it's hard being young from the slums, eating five-cent gums, not knowing where your meal's from. Um, I mean, Juicy is obviously like hip-hop's anthem at this yeah. point, right? I would say <laughs> it's like Rapper's Delight and yeah. Juicy kind of go head-to-head. Yeah, this album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. Yeah, yeah. And to all my peoples in the struggle, you know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. Check it, check it. It was all a dream. I used to One of those songs where I think everyone knows every word, which is pretty cool and, and rare, I think, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes more rare that it's this like shared moment that everyone has and it transcends generations. Um, you know, I think uh, warning is great. Mm. Who the fuck is this? Page of me at 546 in the morning. Crack a dawning. Now I'm yawning. Wipe the cold out my eye. 
see who's this page of me and why it's my nigga pop from the barber shop told me he was in the gambling spot and heard the intricate plot a niggas want to stick me like fly paper neighbor slow down love please chill drop the caper remember them niggas from the hill up in brownsville that you rode dice with to me that showed a different side where it's almost like this darker kind of sinister side of big as an artist which again it just reinforces that storytelling ability um you know give me the loot another one where just it feels very um like savage lock your windows close your doors make you My man Imp left a tech and a nine at my crib. Turned himself in, he had to do a bid. A one to three, he be home the end of 93. I'm ready to get this paper, G. You with me? Motherfucking right. My pockets looking kind of tight. And I'm stressed. Yo, Biggie, let me get the vest. No need for that. Just grab the fucking gat. The first pocket that's fat. The tech is to his back. Word is born, I'm a smoke. And there's parts of it that, especially as an adult, you kind of cringe or you're like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this, but. It, it strikes you. It strikes this chord. Um, I mean, I love uh, the what with Method Man just because Meth is, to me, one of the best voices in hip hop. And oh, yeah. anytime two great rappers go back and forth, it's like this cool competition. I'm not a gentle man. I'm a Method Man. Baby, accept it. Utmost respected. Assume the position. Stop looking. Listen. I spit on your grave. Then I grab my Charles Dickens. Welcome bitch. to my center. Honey's feeling deep in their placenta. Cold as the pole in the winter. Far from the inventor. Well, I got this rap shit sold. And when my Mac um loads, I'm guaranteed another video. Ready to die while. But yeah, I mean, basically, almost the whole album, I would say, from top to bottom. I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you. I, that's actually one of my favorites as well. And you, you describe the vulnerability. And also, like, it's got everything a great American movie has, you know, Martin Scorsese movie with like money, sex, violence. There's, there's some parts of it listening back where the skits are like, Oh man, this is a little on the nose. Uh, but you also understand what's happening and enjoy the entire experience. Uh, in terms of, uh, no way out, what, what songs kind of stood out for you off of that album? I mean, no way out to me again, it's an example of Puff putting together an album that should be this like cinematic journey, right? Like it starts with the crescendo of him kind of becoming an artist after Biggie passes away. And there's obviously nods to Big with like, I'll be missing you and tracks that he did record um, when he was alive as well, like Victory and mm -hmm. Benjamins and all of these big records. To me, that was an example of the album which is really big songs. Like everything yeah. just sounded big and you wanted to like turn it up in your headphones. Um, I mean, back then it was like a Sony disc man. So it only went so loud without, you know, starting to skip and act weird. Now, what y'all want to do? Want to be ballers, shot callers, brawlers. Who be dipping in the bins with the spoilers? On the low from the Jake and the Taurus. Trying to get my hands on some grants like Horace. Yeah, living the raw deal. Three-course meal, spaghetti, fettuccine, and veal. But still. To me, that's what Puff always brought is like this theatrical element where some people say it's like P.T. Barnum, right? Where it's mm -hmm. all about like the the flair and the drama. And to me, that was what that album represented. But I think outside of that, there were some great 
um, appearances by like the locks and black Rob, little Kim, which I thought was really smart too, where Puff was building a brand where these are the other artists you need to know, and you're going to hear about more so in the future. I think now we kind of take that for granted because every artist is on every other artist's record, right? Sure. Where it's almost like this verse for a word verse, like quid pro quo. But back then it felt like there was some, you know, version of being like, you know, strategic and selective of who you wanted to put, um, on your album no definitely even twista like i was listening to it and i re-listening to no way out and i didn't catch the song that had twista on it and uh i was introduced to twista on like overnight celebrity or some of the kanye songs later on um but no way out was an album that i had and yet never really kind of noticed that and some of the guests that puff was putting on the album i proceeded to ask him and he said with a passion i can never watch a soul die push you the man that you too fly well who are you the pimp nigga named twister from the cold shot when the sunshine gotta keep one now nigga i've been shot at it for a lot of regional artists it's at, at least at that stage in rap you needed that east coast cosign i mean i remember twister from like you know the do or die um era because again coming from the midwest we sure. get some chicago music yeah but uh, you know when juvenile for him to cross over like jay had to jump on the ha remix true, right because true. for a lot of people to get credibility in new york and among kind of like the gatekeepers of new york you needed that cosign in 2020 i would argue that's pretty much antiquated mm. um you know it doesn't matter where you're from like with you know, you put your record on SoundCloud or YouTube and or TikTok, and it doesn't really matter if someone from one of the coasts or the so-called gatekeepers is co-signing it. But back then, it was a different landscape. Yeah, and on on No Way Out, I mean, you mentioned some of the big songs, um, "Victory," "All About the Benjamins." Uh, are are any of those ones that you like absolutely loved and listened to over and over again, or is that sort of like the whole album? It was probably the whole album. I mean, one of the deeper cuts, Young G's, I really liked. Again, it was oh my just God. to hear Jay, Jay and Big go back and forth. Just for greatness, and y'all knew this when I doubled the pie. Had the shorty and the girdle coming out of BWI. And I hated out your bar, but I loved the multiply. And I told my nigga Big I'd be multi before I die. It's gonna happen whether rapping or clapping. Have it your way, because if that's my dough, you're trapping. I'm clapping your way. Um, Anytime they would go back and forth, like, like I love the dough, yeah, uh, Brooklyn's finest. Like, what? Anytime those two were together was always just like a treat because it's, you know, it's basically it'd be like I don't know, LeBron and like Jordan going against <laughs> yeah. each other. I don't, you know, 100%. how that would happen without without a time machine. Damn, it feel good to see people up on it. Flip two keys in two weeks and didn't flaunt it. My brain is haunted with mean dreams. GS with BBs on it, supreme schemes to get richer than Richie quickly. Niggas wanna hit me if they get me. Dress my body in linen by Armani. Check it. And again, like I don't even think Puff at that point or even now really views himself as a rapper in that kind of traditional sense. So it was also kind of intriguing to see a producer. And again, he's not a producer in like the traditional sense. Like He's not Quincy with like different instruments. Yep, like, yep. no, he's the guy who just has the ear and has a vision and can describe a vibe, right. what that album would look like. Um, you know, nowadays we see people like, you know, Khaled, who've done so many albums kind of in that same vein. Um, but back then that was still a little bit sort of 
controversial, right? This idea that why is the president of the label who's sort of a producer and sort of a rapper putting out the label's biggest project? Like that was kind of a, you know, a game changer. And, you know, I think what was great was it just launched that whole Hype Williams, mm-hmm. fisheye lens, shiny suit era that was just fun. And I think rap needed to feel fun because after Pac and Big died, everything just kind of sucked and you know people were scared and people weren't sure what was going to happen so sometimes you just need a party and have a good time and with Def Jam especially with like DMX and to some extent like Jay and Ja Rule it was this idea of the response to the shiny suits and we got so much great music as like the next wave so I think you know no matter how you feel about him, Puff's like mark on this game is indelible. Totally. And I mean, you called out the contributions of people like Jay-Z who like jumped on Ha and like shined a light on on New Orleans and that sound. Also, Puff did that, right? In terms of uh, something I, I discovered, which I didn't know, is that when he, when Outkast put out their first single, um, he went down and he filmed their video and he was like, you know, elbowing Andre 3000 and was like, dude, you need to be more of a sex symbol. Take your shirt off. And so... I think yep. he, he's that master marketer that has the eye for where things are going uh, and how he can be part of it. And and uh, I mean, like Khalid today, like wants to put his stamp on it and his name needs to be all over it. But I, I do feel like he's had that sense as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's just, you know, whether it be Usher, you know, Mary J. Blige, like so many artists at the inception of their career, he helped kind of mold their positioning and their branding um, you know, you're the queen of hip hop and R and B. Yep. You ha- why? How? It's it's self proclaimed, and sometimes if you say it with enough confidence, people believe you. And I think, arguably, she is the queen now, right? So many years later, clearly yep. that manifested. Um, but I think you know the cool part with hip hop is this idea that it's not one specific trajectory to be in the game. Either in front of the camera, you can be the artist, the producer the DJ, the, you know, the, the mogul, but there's also behind the scenes, so many different ways to be a part of this game, which I think is exciting, not just as a young person, but I think in general, it's this idea that this culture and this industry continue to just grow and evolve. Um, And, you know, now even compared to when I started in the game, there's so many more ways to kind of be a part of it, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, I want to talk about how you got involved. And, and I know that, you know, something I, I saw on social media you posted was just about um, in the last decade, you transitioned from a nine to five into interviewing so many great artists and putting your own imprint on the culture. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that transition in your own life, like how you decided to become a music journalist and uh, what the last kind of 10 years plus have been like in the game. Sure. Well, I mean, growing up, I probably around the age of 13, I kind of made a promise to myself that I was going to work in hip hop. Like it was just kind of something I decided and kept to myself and was like, this is what I'm going to do. And my dream was either to work at Bad Boy or Def Jam. Like I very much wanted like a label job. Um, When I was in college through like a weird course of events, I actually got an internship at Bad Boy. So, you know, I've met Puff, like I've been in the office, whatever, whatever. And, you know, it was great, like moving to New York and just kind of being able to, in some small part, be like an intern at this like amazing record label that I, you know, held in such high esteem. And after I graduated was around the time like the music industry was going through, um, you know, a little bit of a of a 
low period, right? Because we were in the post Napster era. Um, people weren't buying CDs anymore and the game was changing and a lot of people were losing their jobs. So those label jobs were really hard to find, let alone to keep. So it was really kind of a weird time to, to come into the industry. So I started my career at William Morris Endeavor, which is one of um, the biggest talent agencies in Hollywood. And I started their mailroom program, which is like this iconic program where all of these, you know, moguls have started, um, where you're pushing a mail cart and your dream is to become someone's assistant and to answer phones and get Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, like from a cultural perspective, like I went to the University of Michigan, I went to business school. I got really good grades. You know, I was being courted by different companies, like more kind of traditional corporate companies to work. And how do you reconcile that, right? Where you could be making like 50, 60,000 out of college, but I was making $400 a week before taxes in New York. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I don't come from money. I'm not independently wealthy. <laughs> So a lot of people in that program were trust fund kids. Like mm. they didn't have to work. They did that because it's like a nice gold star on your resume. Yeah. So, you know, the first couple of years were a struggle. I'm not going to lie. Like, I think I was just so young and happy to be here. And we're going out and meeting celebrities. And, you know, you're just kind of enjoying like living in New York. Like it made it worthwhile. But looking back, I mean, I'm not really sure how I <laughs> ate three meals a day. <laughs> Um, without going into like crazy debt, like somehow we kind of rubbed two pennies and made it happen. Mm. Um, you know, so I did that for a couple of years, pivoted into this digital agency called Ice Media, where we worked with a lot of record labels on their digital marketing campaigns, social media, digital PR. And the company was so small, like it was a mm. startup that I had no choice but to wear a bunch of hats and get a lot of responsibility which was great because in my previous job, like I was begging someone to get their Starbucks. Right. And then, you know, a few months later, I'm in meetings with like the president of labels, like literally the head of Sony at the time, you know, the head of Atlantic. Like I knew all these people because our company just didn't have enough bodies to go take these meetings. So, you know, at that point, I realized I don't want to work at a label. Um, I got to see what it's like to be inside a label, like not as an intern, but as an employee. And I just know myself really well in my disposition. I'm not really organized. Can't, I don't like writing a to-do list. I don't like those things. How could I be a product manager? Like That's what you do is keep the artist calendar and make sure the budgets are on point and you're in meetings all day. Like to me, that sounds boring. That's like a corporate job. Like sure. I want a job where it's like fun and I can sleep till noon if I want, right? So around that time, I started kind of freelancing and I had I'd always written, you know, I wrote for my high school paper, the, uh, not the high school paper, my local paper, the Kalamazoo Gazette when I was in high school and then for the Michigan Daily when I was in college. So I knew I was a good writer. It wasn't something I really thought about in a professional lens. It's like, yeah, I write. It's fun. It's easy, whatever. So I started freelancing while I was at my nine to five. And what's kind of ill is that I would be interviewing people like J. Cole on my lunch break. I'd be interviewing like Wiz Khalifa because they were kind of nobodies back then. Sure, yeah. So all of us kind of came up together in the industry, Big Sean, like Chance, everybody. 
And then it got to the point where, you know, my name started circulating enough because I was writing for like New York Magazine and the Village Voice and Vibe, like mm. pretty big places for someone who's doing it on their lunch break, you know, punched in a corner somewhere in Soho. <laughs> and that's when um, some producers at MTV saw me. They approached me about this show they were working on called Hip Hop POV. So I ended up doing the show and that was sort of like my transition out of like my job because it was just impossible to uh, juggle a television show and like a nine to five. And, you know, the cool part was like my boss at ICE was super supportive and she's like, look, you got to do what you're passionate about. And clearly this is what you want to do, right? Like, I would love to keep you here, but like, you got to do what, um, what really kind of fulfills you. And that's when I, I started doing the freelance thing full time. And you know, for me, it's been great. Like a lot of people always ask me, like, what's it like to be freelance? Like some people think it's very much like Carrie Bradshaw, Sex in the City. It's not because she got paid $4 a word at Vogue. So if I got paid $4 a word, I'd write one article and be on a beach somewhere. Um, but, you know, I think the great part about being freelance, and I always say this, especially type women or people of color, like what's great is you get to define your career. Sure. So I've gotten a lot of big interviews because sometimes I had the relationship, you know, I brought Chief Keith to Billboard. Mm. I brought French to Billboard because I had the access. So I'm like, look, if I can get you Keith in rehab, no one else has talked to him. Mm-hmm. But that's because I know GBE and they trust me because, you know, I'd interviewed Dirk and Fredo and other people. They had to give me the story, but I knew if I was on staff somewhere, I'd be waiting, you know, I'd be waiting for someone to pass me the torch. And I don't know if it's like millennial hubris or um, ADD or what, but I'm not going to wait. Like if I know I can do it, I'm just going to fucking do it because no one owns you. I don't have to ask anyone permission. And that was always something kind of, you know, going back to what you said earlier about hip hop. To me, the ethos of hip hop is one is everyone's a multi-hyphenate, right? Everyone, even to this day, Puffy is 97 jobs and he gets 97 checks. Mm-hmm. But it's this idea of creating your own thing and being like the master of your domain. I mean, to me, Jay-Z's been saying that since, you know, before he was a rapper, was like, I'm a businessman and that's mm-hmm. how he's navigated this world. And I think that level of confidence and autonomy to me has always been super attractive. Um and I think that's a positive thing we can take from the culture. Yeah, no. And it's so interesting because as you're describing your journey through the 2010s, right, that's also sort of a hip hop's journey in the 2010s as like independent artists like Chance, like Action Bronson are not needing to go corporate or not needing to be attached to a major label. They're able to do their thing, get their following and mostly operate independently. Right. So it's awesome to hear like your story run parallel to theirs in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I was very lucky because I came up during this like digital era of journalism where a lot of print OGs, they didn't make the transition. Either they chose not to or, you know, they just were unable to. So it opened up the landscape for a new generation. Old barriers of entry were gone. You didn't need to be a intern at Vibe magazine or Rolling Stone in order to get that your foot in the door. You could just have a blog. Yeah. And, you know, like with everything, the market got saturated and then kind of moved on to the next thing. But for people like myself, the combination of just the digital era and social media, I mean, they were invaluable to us because I don't know, had we gone through like the traditional route, if we would have been successful, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. 
I, I do want to ask you about you know the most memorable interview, but I think the one that caught my eye when I was reading through your your work in the two thousand tens was Harry Fraud, who's a I oh, I yeah. believe like underrated producer. I, f- I love Harry Fraud. I'm curious what that interview was like and 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 uh, how he kind of fits within the producers that you love. Yeah, it's funny. So, oh my God, I've interviewed Harry probably, I don't know, like 20 times or something by now. Um, like, I, it's like I count him as a friend at this point because I've known him for so long. But, you know, I was doing a lot of writing for The Village Voice, um, RIP. It's no longer in print anymore, but that's like an iconic publication for anyone in New York, right? It's our like weekly local publication and the editors there were always great about highlighting what was going on in New York Mm. and you know Harry came across my radar probably during sort of like the coke boys like French Montana era wearing that same shit Jesus used to wear. I mean, obviously everyone knows him from his awesome like drop and it's, you know, super memorable. But I think I'd seen a couple interviews with him and I just felt like he would be a really interesting person to talk to. And one thing about journalists, especially when you start interviewing a lot of people, you can see and kind of gauge who's going to be a good interview and who's going to be a boring interview. And there are some super A-listers, household names that are just really duds when it comes to an interview. It's just like going on a date, right? Like some dates you meet someone and you're like immediately attracted to them. They're awesome. You're vibing. And then there's some dates, you know, it's not a love connection, but they're still really interesting and charismatic and engaging. And some dates you're like, check, please get me out of here. I never want to date again. You know, I want to throw every app into the ocean. To me, Harry's a great example where, I mean, musically, he's got a great ear and his ear is very tuned to like New York rap, which yeah. I love, right? It's very like, you know, DITC and Lord Finesse and Premier. Like that's what his ear is already tuned to, which I love. Yeah. Um, but he's also just interesting. Like he surfs, like who does that? Like he grew <laughs> up surfing, um, you know, and again, now that like we're friends, I know a lot more about him, but like that always kind of bugged me out. Like, wait, you surf? Like who does that? What are some of your top Harry Fraud produced tracks? <sighs> what are my top Harry Fraud produced tracks? So there was an EP that he did and you're going to have to like double check the name that it was. It was like in conjunction with, was it like Toyota? Do you remember that? Mean, Hmm. I think was like the opening single. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 So I remember. So that project. Blue Green. Is that what it's called? Blue Slash Green. I think it was. Yeah. The got the Harry Fraud. that whole project was great um i mean obviously shot collar like Mm -hmm. how can you not love that record Mm -hmm. um i love a lot of the stuff he's done with um with bronson like sob stories Uh, white leather to the knee we in the traffic 
Left-handed switches, speeds them in the cockpit. Straight from flushing, man, we known for using chopsticks. Problems getting dealt with, never pop shit. Hit you with the drop kick, Marty Janetti. No, uh, you know, I think one thing about Harry is that he always likes to be in the studio with the artist. And he likes to like vibe with them and hang out with them. And sometimes there'll be a lot of just vibing and then you get to the music. And I think that's why you see he works with certain people over and over, yep. whether it's French or Currency, Currency. or Bronson mm -hmm. or, um, you know, Mayhem Lauren or, you know, Body or whomever. Right. And that's very unique. And it's funny because the last 10 years, but especially the last like five, six years, I talked to so many producers. They've never met the artist. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, maybe they FaceTimed, maybe, but a lot of it is just sending beats, send beats, send beats, send beats. And yes, look, you may end up getting the next, I don't know, old town road and, you know, you can retire off an island somewhere. Sure. But I think if you're going to be a career producer, um, it's about building the relationships because it's so easy for an artist to go to the hot flavor of the week, right? Like, why should I keep coming back to you? And I think in his music, you kind of feel that where there's this feeling of almost mutual comfort. Right. I would love more producers to do that. Now in quarantine, it's probably not the safest thing to do. Hmm, but true. once we get back to normal, I would like to see more of that. And I think the music would be better. No, I agree. And I think similar to Alchemist, who he uh, calls out, it was his favorite producer. It's like those albums where it was just Prodigy and Alchemist doing five, six songs. I feel like he's taken that model, done it with Currency, uh, a trilogy now, right? Uh, the recent release a couple weeks ago. Um, and it, it makes for a different feeling and a sound, and you can just tell the relationship um, brings something deeper into the music. So I'm with you there. Totally. To me, I'm like, all of your favorite records were made when people were in a room together. Yeah. Like, so true. So true. I, you know, Quincy was in the studio with Michael. Puff was in the studio with Big. Like, Just Blaze was in the studio with Jay. Like, you know, Tim and Missy were in the studio together. Like, mm -hmm. there's a reason that formula worked versus insert rapper A and producer B. Okay, smush them together and make a record, you know? know a lens you can bring to this conversation as being a woman in hip-hop and right and carrying uh yourself into certain rooms and certain interviews and you did mention lemonade as like an album that was really powerful uh and so i'm curious if you can just spend a couple minutes commenting on that like what was it about that album is it um is it something about beyonce that really resonated uh in in that moment yeah to me i mean lemonade in my opinion is probably Beyonce's best album and I know the the Beehive may have other thoughts about it but it felt like the first time she was just unapologetically herself and I think for women especially regardless of whether you're in the music industry or politics or fashion or wherever you are there's certain kind of expectations of how you look how you act what you should say what you shouldn't say and someone like Beyonce, I mean, her whole career ever since she was a kid was about 
saying the right things, wearing the right thing, you know, singing the songs that would work, the, you know, basically being this, um, this robot almost, right, who got elevated to a superstar because of her work ethic and her drive and her passion. And Lemonade was that album where you saw her being honest and being real, right, to a certain extent. And I think that's important for all of us, but especially for women, is that you're never going to be, you know, everything to everybody. And yeah. sometimes you just got to be, you know, true to yourself. I I think on a second level is that was a great album of a woman growing and evolving as a mature woman, not being like a little girl. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, especially in the industry, whether it's men or women, age is a very tricky subject. And I remember one of my bosses at Bad Boy had told me when I was an intern, he said, rap is a young man's game. And he meant each of those words very literally. Hmm. But I've seen even a lot of men have a hard time growing up, right? Like at 22, 23, you're rapping about money, cash, hoes. What are you rapping about at 43? It's still money cash hoes. Like, really? It just doesn't resonate. It doesn't connect. And I think the um, counterpoint to Lemonade was obviously Jay's 444. And to me, again, that was the example of this is how you can do grown man rap. Sure. And that's important because I think for a lot of people, when you work in these kind of youth obsessed industries, how do you grow up? Right. Because for a lot of us, like, I don't want to dance on tables anymore, right? <laughs> like, I did that at 22. I don't know it where I'm at now. If I, a, I could get up on the table and B, <laughs> if I could carry my weight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, it's just, that's not fun anymore. Like, that's not a thing. Like, it's you grow up, you want to elevate to that next level while still having fun and kind of knowing what's going on. But how do you grow up in this industry? And hip hop is a young genre, like, how does one stay true true to themselves while also evolving and kind of taking fans on that journey? Yeah. Um, and I think Lemonade did a really good job of that. And for a lot of people, it made them like Beyonce more because mm -hmm. now she was human and she was showing pain and sadness and it came from a genuine place. And I think fans really can, they can feel that. Say true love's the greatest weapon to end the war caused by pain. Pain, pain. But every diamond has imperfections. But my love's too pure to watch it chip away. It's almost like, you know, this idea of Beyonce having the best album of her career at an age where she was a mother, she was in her thirties, I believe. Right. And so mm -hmm. I think yep. that that's important to understand too. Cause like the point you made about men and how like it's a young man's game and when they get older, harder for them to kind of still tell the same stories. That's maybe doubly true for women. Right. Cause I feel like growing, 100%. growing up, uh, a lot of the women I saw in pop culture were Bollywood actresses. And I remember just the norm was like, Oh, Karishma Kapoor, she's 
going to get married and then just never appear in a movie again. And it was like, yep. that was like the normal thing. In, yeah. In like, in like 10 years, she'll come and play the mom. Right. Play the mom. Right. In 20 and, years, she'll play the grandmother. Cause it's, I think it's this idea for women, right. Whether it be in entertainment or even outside and, you know, the real world, so much of how sort of like the heteronormative gaze is women as being like sexy and youthful and, someone I can date, right? Mm-hmm. So even when people are young, I mean, there are people in the industry, they're in long-term relationships, but you would never know yeah. because their teams are like, nah, you need to be single. Yeah. Like women want to date you, men want to be you, you know, or vice versa, like however that plays out. And it's this idea for Beyonce, like her whole life, she's like beautiful. And then she's like a sex symbol. Oh, now you're a mom. Now you're Jay's wife. So may- maybe you should like not do that. No, mm-hmm. she can still perform she's you know still at the top of her game she looks amazing um i mean some would argue she's even like more glowing and beautiful now because i think she knows who she is and i think it's funny because you know so many people talk about your 20s your 30s i don't know about anyone else but my 30s are great because you know you can do i can do everything for my 20s but i got money (laughs) (laughs) yeah and like some more self-confidence like just feel less you know unsure about things i feel you like you're, you know, so people like are always so concerned in this society, like the obsession over don't tell people your age, you need to lie about it. It's like, why? You know, it's all about living your best self at whatever age. And for artists, knowing that your fans will grow with you, yeah. like Sade doesn't have to lie about her age. Like uh-huh. her fans have been with her, you know, for the past like 30 years. <laughs> I would say people like Beyonce or even Adele, like, I think their fans want to grow with them through different, you know, relationships and life situations. And that's powerful. Like that's a true connection to a fan, not just, you know, I like you in this box for this snapshot of time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember Sorry on on Lemonade was a song I played for my students in seventh grade. And I was like, I still to this day think that song just has bars. But I ain't fucking with nobody. Let's have a toast to the good life. Suicide before you see this tear fall down my eyes. Me and my baby, we gon' be alright. We gon' live a good life. The line that sticks with me is when she's like, me and my baby are gonna be alright. We're gonna live a good life. Like, I can handle my own. Me and my daughter, we can live on our own, right? It's sort of like, just that idea that, oh, women need men, or the um, sort of expectations that society has and then seeing a woman like her shining in motherhood and becoming bigger and bigger uh, is, is something noteworthy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I do think a lot of that sort of paradigm of like the mom, dad, 2.5 kids and dog have started to change. You know, I know they're controversial but I will say, look at the Kardashians. I mean, this is a family of very, very, very successful women who arguably don't need men, right? Like they can have relationships. Sometimes, you know, it could be a marriage. It could be a boyfriend. You know, it could just be something fun. But their strength comes from them as a family. And I do think that I'd be interested, right, kind of moving forward, how that has helped maybe redefine some of these expectations and norms because I think there would have been a time someone like a Kylie Jenner might have gotten married right because that's the quote-unquote right thing to do um but now it's like look if you can 
live the life you want. You can take care of your child, take care of yourself, live a great life with your family and friends. Why not? Um, and I think that's awesome. And I, I, I would hope that message, especially for women, you know, resonates not just in America, but in other parts of the world too, where marriage is so, um, you know, kind of as an expectation. We sometimes put like a premium on that, especially in Indian culture. I'm sure you watch, you know, Indian matchmaking, the show that's taken over the globe. (laughs) Um, And it's really this like obsession with marriage. And, you know, one thing I did like about that show, again, going back to representation, it was nice to see like regular Indian Americans, like nothing about them was particularly glamorous or um, out of the norm, like they just seem like regular schmegglers. Yeah. And they were very open about, you know, dating and kind of the cultural duality, which was great. But I think just kind of the through line of this desperation for marriage, whether it be here or in India, I don't know, to me, it was like a turnoff. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I get it. Like, that's something you want. But, you know, like so many things in life, focus on yourself. Sure. Like when you're good, you're in a good headspace you attract the right people. But, you know, I think it's, it's, it's hard, right? It's hard to undo centuries of, uh, of cultural conditioning. But I did like, you know, some of the characters on that show, especially, I believe it was like Ankita in um, Delhi, Mm. where she represented this modern Indian woman. And to me, that's dope, because, you know, I didn't grow up in India. I haven't spent a ton of time there kind of in more recent times to see these like millennial Indian women questioning certain norms and wanting to create their own life is very refreshing. No, totally. I agree. And it's something that, you know, those shows give us a window into. I see my cousin in Mumbai is like more progressive, you know, than a lot of people I know who grew up out here. And and I think that's a credit to like what certain folks coming up in India are taking away from the culture and not something that we should dismiss because they're like fobby or have accents. Yeah, no. And I do think, you know, without getting way too into it, I think for a lot of people who are up here, you have to remember our parents brought a version of India with them that they remember. So that could be anywhere from like the seventies, eighties, nineties. Whereas our family back home, like they've lived life in modern India. So I think that's the thing that sometimes I've I've heard that narrative from a couple people. They're like, wow, Indian Americans are more conservative than their counterparts there. Like if I lived in India, I would be in Delhi. I'd be hanging out with Ankita and her friends, <laughs> looking great in that denim, yeah. drinking gin, because they just seem like cool people, right? Like that resonated with me. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I think that for a lot of us who grew up here, and again, for a lot of immigrants of any culture, you hold so tight to what you know. Yep. So that's why I do think that we probably grew up in a more conservative way than definitely our kids will or our kids kids will um but even some people in india so you know i don't know how much of like the new bollywood like movies or serials and stuff you watch but they're hitting on things like you know lgbtq community oh, yeah. living together yeah. premarital sex like this was unheard of you know totally. when i was coming up so to me clearly india is moving leaps and bounds ahead right and we just got to play catch up yeah yeah i know like the made in heaven i saw that i was pretty impressed mm-hmm. by like what they were showing and how they were you know changing up a lot of the uh the lot of things i came up with which is like can't even see a kiss on screen and it's like a, a yeah. you know a rain scene I mean, to I show most, eroticism most, yeah yeah and for most of us like that's how we grew up and i think we think that's all of india now don't get me wrong i think the vast majority 
still lives in a more conservative space. Like obviously, you know, what's shown on Netflix, India, um, speaks to a very specific demographic and I don't want to be myopic about that. But the fact those convos are even happening, I love it. Like anytime, you know, my, you know, mom has friends, kids who want to do something different, especially women. It just like makes my heart tingle with pride and happiness because I love it. Like, whether it's here or there, you know, the, the expectations of women um, are very different from guys. And I love to see just kind of this new wave of young women um, really taking control of their life. Like, to me, that's really uh, an amazing thing to see. And I want to see more of it. Yeah. And maybe we'll get some good music out of it, too. Because, you know, like, you know, music is always describing what's happening socially, too. So, Beyonce's lemonade. It's gonna be a lot more uh, no scrub. <laughs> a lot more no scrub. Which I'm which which I'm not mad at. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you see, even recently in America with the whole WAP controversy sure. with Cardi and with Meg, this idea that all of a sudden everyone was clutching their pearls. I'm like, have you listened to rap? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, Too Short, you know, Juicy J, you know, put it in your mouth. Like, what are you, where is this coming from? Totally. Um, but it goes back to this idea, even in America, we can be very liberal about certain things, but when we talk about a woman's body or sexuality or sexual freedom, people get really uncomfortable, you know, and it's, it's a weird duality. Like, wait, we can, you know, do this, that, and the third. But when we talk about women having agency over that, all of a sudden, you know, won't someone please think of the children. But yeah, I think, you know, a, uh, a strong opinionated woman can be very scary to some people, but that's why, I mean, I love Cardi B even before she be, you know, became huge. She's represented this unapologetic, like unabashed sense of self. And I like that. She's not, she doesn't hide who she is. She doesn't also make excuses. I'm not ashamed. Yeah. I was a stripper. And, and that's the thing is when you control your narrative, like no one can, use like fear tactics or control you it's all about you getting in front of the story um and i think all of us in some small way can take some advice from that right of how you can just shape your story like you t- you get to tell your story nobody else does That's a wrap on episode three of South Asians Love Rap. Thanks for listening. Big shout out to Somia for coming on and dropping some wisdom. I really appreciate her. Uh, If you want to follow more of her content and see what she's up to, please follow her on Twitter at Somia K. Check the spelling, make sure it's right. Also, if you like what you're hearing, would love for folks to go to Apple Podcasts and, and share a review Give us a rating based on what you think. Share any feedback. Uh, South Asians Love Rap is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Akash Pandey. Theme music is by Dust Collector. Cover art is by Aaron Zonka. Thanks again for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Hope to have more content out soon.